This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode is Come Outers. During the early to mid-19th century, an interesting phenomena spread over the thinking of parts of Western Europe and the United States. It was a general negativity about the present, but a strong optimism for the future. In some places, it was almost giddy. The current political and economic situation might be a mess, and the number of social ills piling higher, but the Enlightenment's promise of a bright new day gripped the imagination of thousands. The recent boom in technological progress with things like steam engines, cotton gins, and spinning machines promised endless new products, markets, and employment. Medicine was making dramatic steps forward, promising less pain and a longer life. Trains and steamships conquered distance in a way that the generation before could not have imagined. Yeah, today might be tough, but hang on, because tomorrow, well, that's going to be awesome. While that mentality was spotty in Western Europe, it was pretty much a blanket across the United States. European immigrants remarked on the nearly euphoric positivity of their new homeland. This positivism was largely the product of the pervasive evangelical revivalism that owned most American churches and a good portion of the population. That evangelicalism conveyed the idea that conversion to faith in Christ conveyed a new heart that sought after holiness. People began to reason that that new heart ought to pursue holiness in a new world shaped by holiness. And all of this spilled into numerous reform efforts, attempts to remedy past grievances, and address the growing number of new challenges that industrialization had produced. For progress did not come cheap. As Charles Dickens wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So, evangelicals went to work on reforming society. Charles Finney championed abolition as being part and parcel of the Christian faith. He went so far as to refuse communion to slaveholders. Stephen Caldwell called for new tariffs to protect American wages and to fund the Christianizing of the public school system. In 1816, the American Bible Society proposed distributing Bibles as a moral and spiritual antibiotic aimed to eradicate theological liberalism and any goofy ideas that were being brought over by immigrants. The American Sunday School Union set up dozens of schools in urban centers to educate the growing pool of child laborers. In 1858, evangelicals in New York City had established 76 missions to minister to the needs of the urban poor. While most reform-minded evangelicals engaged the culture, a smaller group decided to pursue holiness by withdrawing from society to form separatist communes. Nathaniel Hawthorne labeled these religiously motivated separatists as come-outers. One example is a group known as the Shakers. Their original name was the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. They began in the mid-18th century as a splinter group from the Quakers, who at the time were moving away from their reputation as enthusiasts of ecstatic forms of worship. The Shakers didn't want to just maintain that reputation, they wanted to ramp it up. So they became known as the Shaking Quakers. They were led by the ardent and eloquent preaching of Jane Wardley who said that the millennium was about to begin with the return of Christ. In preparation for that return, 
They gave themselves to strict celibacy and a remarkable egalitarianism that saw a notable influence of women in the leadership of the group. Shakers settled in colonial America, but never saw many members until this era of reform in the mid-19th century, when their community grew to its largest number, some 6,000. The policy of celibacy, as well as changes in society, saw the eventual dwindling of the Shaker movement to just a single community today. Another group of come-outers were the Millerites. William Miller was a well-off farmer and a Baptist lay preacher in Northeast New York. He became convinced that Christ would return sometime between 1843 and 44. His calculations convinced a large number of people across many churches and denominations. They set the date for March 21, 1843, as the likely day that Jesus would return. But Millerism, as it came to be known, was rejected by most clergy. By the beginning of 1843, the movement had hardened around its enthusiasts and those who opposed it. Advocates of Millerism left their churches to form a new group of like-minded supporters. But then it hardened even more after the evening of March 21st, when Millerites donned special ascension robes and waited for the big event. Some had gone so far as to give away their property. But when the morning of the 22nd dawned, they were supremely bummed out. Because, and I don't think I'm giving anything away here, Jesus had in fact not returned. Miller did some quick figuring and said that he had missed some minor calculations and needed to revise the date to April 18th. On April 19th, he re-upped by saying that it wasn't the days that he had gotten wrong, it was the year. It would be March 21st of 1844. When that passed, it was October 2nd. But by then, the Millerites were a laughingstock and no new dates were picked. But instead of calling it quits and going back to their old denominations, the Millerites formed a new one called the Adventists. In a bit of revisionism, they said that Christ really had come at the aforesaid and appointed time, but he'd come in the spirit rather than the flesh. By 1863, the Adventists had 125 churches. They made themselves odious to many Americans by declaiming the United States as the great whore of Babylon doomed to the plagues and fires described in the book of Revelation. But the most extreme form of come-outerism was the 1830 emergence of the Mormons under the leadership of Joseph Smith. Taking the name The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Smith claimed to have unearthed the record of a pre-Columbian group of immigrants who traveled all the way from the Middle East to settle in the New World. They fashioned an extensive civilization in the Americas, but were wiped out by other Native Americans. The golden plates that Joseph Smith unearthed contained the record of that lost civilization with a proper understanding of the Christian faith. Smith claimed that the church as it was, was a horrible corruption, something God had never intended it become. Mormonism claimed to restore the gospel that Jesus and the apostles had taught. But there was little connection between Joseph Smith's vision of the gospel and the Bible, and so most churches and denominations opposed Smith's emerging movement. The Mormons moved from New York to the Midwest, but when hostility broke out there, in 1847 they decided to make the big leap and head to a place all their own in the consummate come-outer move. They headed west and settled along the shore of the Great Salt Lake in what would one day be the state of Utah. They might as well have settled on the moon. 
While each of these come-outer sects was radically different in its theological leanings, what united them was their short-term pessimism about the world in which they lived. That's how they justified their break with society. But they maintained a long-term optimism about their ability, once they'd come out of that corrupt society, to found a healthy and holy community that could achieve its grand vision of establishing, if not a literal heaven on earth, then at least an outpost of it. And each reprised a story that dates all the way back to the Desert Fathers that we talked about early in season one. The hermits, who, having swallowed the dualism of Greek philosophy, fled the city to dwell alone in caves for years or to sit atop a pillar for weeks. They understood holiness as a physical separation from the world. If that's what Jesus had meant by being holy, that's what he would have done, but it's not. Jesus was to be found with people, often the kind of people least likely to show up at synagogue or a church. Yes, Jesus spent time alone in the wilderness, but only in preparation for his time in the city. He wasn't a man of the city, but he certainly was a man in it, where the love of God for needy souls could be seen and passed off to others. His strategy for reform wasn't to withdraw from the world, but to enter into it. Secular reform movements copied religious come-outers in creating communes that were dedicated not to a religiously-fueled spirituality, but to a philosophically-based morality. Transcendentalists founded Brook Farm as an experiment in communal living. The Northampton Association organized an economic industrial cooperative. Oberlin, Ohio was organized as a colony and a college, with the college based on the philosophy of self-sufficient manual labor. The American obsession with reform drew criticism from some. They saw it as the dark side of democracy. Brownson thought that all the enthusiasm for reform was the logical consequence of Protestant individualism. Author Nathaniel Hawthorne, who'd coined the term come-outers, said that most reform was based on an overestimation of human nature. But Alex de Tocqueville, by far the shrewdest observer of Americanism in the 19th century, regarded the reform impulse as a mark of the health of American democracy. 